Howdy. This is Brian Melanson, the founder and president of M4 Innovation, bringing you the Altitude Sessions podcast here from our studio in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. We're really glad you stopped by. Just as a reminder, this podcast is really focused on helping to elevate healthcare thinking of top executives all over the United States. There's been plenty going on in the health economy. we got a pretty loaded show stacked up today. Let's get into it. Okay, well, here we go. Again, we really appreciate you joining us here on the Altitude Sessions podcast. And, you know, with all the wild weather events that are going on, particularly in the Midwest, before we really get deep into the show, I hope that, you know, on behalf of our team, that everyone is staying safe and staying warm. The really historical polar vortex that's going on there is uh, bringing mighty mighty fright and, and in a lot of ways incredibly cold weather that's straining the infrastructure in that part of the country. So, you know, I just want to make sure that all of you know that us here at Information, we're thinking about you. So let's let's jump in, I guess, to presidential politics. Does that seem too early to be doing that? I guess not. I guess it's way too early primary season. And if you weren't hiding under a rock because of extreme cold weather, I mean, it's been cold enough. Even my sister down in Tampa has been complaining about how cold it's been in Florida. I guess it's just one of those things. But if you haven't been under a rock and you happen to have tuned in to CNN on Monday night on the 28th year of January and tuned into the town hall where it's already, and I guess never too early to start hyping nominee candidates for the Democratic nominee. Jake Tapper was leading a town hall that evening and had Senator Kamala Harris from the state of California join. And uh, I'm sure there were some interesting campaign war room moments after that, and I'll get into what was said there, but you know, before maybe to preface it, if you are going to be seeking the Democratic Party's nomination this year, you're probably strongly considering universal health care or some form of that as your health care signature health care platform policy. It's something you're going to have to do to be able to play in the sandbox with other folks like Senator Sanders. And there are 50 shades or 100 shades of what universal health care could mean in this country. But one thing's for certain, given the way the populace voted in the midterms, that health care is on a top of mind thing for a lot of us right now. And there's a lot of zeal on the left side of the political spectrum to really push this agenda because they believe the time is is now. It, it hasn't been better. So if you're a presidential candidate and you're all fired up and you're you know on national TV on CNN and you've got Jake Tapper and he's going through all these various permutations on policy questions and you get to universal health care and you get asked a question really about 
you know, how you would go about it and how that may impact people. You know, and you, you basically make a statement that says, you know, uh, to the effect we're going to eliminate all the private insurance mechanisms that support the payer model today. Holy shit. Now, I'm, I'm sure there are, and I know there are, folks that are going to be running on a very similar platform. But I think coming out and stating it the way it was stated on the 28th, you know, it, it took not even two days for Senator, Senator Harris and, and their campaign to start walking things back. And I don't blame that campaign. You know, that is starting to pick a fight early in the primary process. It's probably too early to pick and certainly is a difficult one to win. So if you weren't familiar with the moment, Tapper asks, you know, so for people out there who like their insurance, they don't get to keep it? You know, and that really concerned look like, hmm, uh, they wouldn't get to keep it? And you know what that's all about. That's President Obama and his his uh, mantra leading into the Affordable Care Act and all the muscle that was used to pass that through the Democratic Party. And it was all about, if you like your plan, you can keep it. So... In political lore, I think that line's going to come up and up and over and over and over again. So what does Senator Harris do? Well, she describes, a, you know, a, a very, a, what I guess in her mind would be a consumer-based or consumer-centric set of issues that folks that live in the current world today might be facing because of the big bad wolf, these insurance organizations. And she responds saying, well, listen. The idea is that everyone gets access to medical care. And you don't have to go through the process of going through an insurance company, having them give you approval, going through the paperwork, all of the delay that may require. Who of us has not had that situation where you've got to wait for approval and the doctor says, well, I don't know if your insurance company is going to cover this. Let's eliminate all of that. Read, let's eliminate them. Let's move on. Hmm. Well, that's certainly an approach. But it also maybe is short-sighted in the fact that no matter who is paying the bills and setting up the way things work and the way doctors are or are not compensated and what is and isn't covered, there's always someone that sits in that role. Maybe a commercial player. It may be a government entity that's designing those rules. But no matter what, and this is where I think people sometimes get confused, no matter what, there's always going to be a payer. In most countries that people talk about, there's multiple payers, and there's just more government regulation around what those trusts can do. That's... It's it's just it's a very interesting moment, and it's certainly you know if I'm if I'm one of you and I'm sitting in an organization that is an insurance organization, I, you know if you don't if you aren't thinking or hedging your business strategies around some of this populism taking hold, and at least talking about what 
your business model may or may not look like going forward because of some of these populist statements that are being made today. You're probably not digging deep enough into the contingency sides of your strategies. And I, I advise having those discussions relatively quick. So that's that's was an interesting moment, you know, that keeps coming out. And, and I think this, this kind of rhetoric and story will play over and over and over again because this is the top-of-the-ticket idea and policy mantra and party theme that is going to play out, particularly on the left side of the aisle. So let's talk a little bit more. I mean, we'll, we'll get into other things with regard to politics and policy and, and other things as, as we move forward in other podcasts. And, you know, that, that's, that stuff's coming. But I want to talk a little bit more about just the employer-sponsored healthcare model in general. This is one of those things where we have a bunch of, of preconceived notions or assumptions that are built into how the healthcare model is, is how it works, how it's delivered to a large majority of people in the, the U.S. And I, I would like to spend some time talking through some of those assumptions and challenging some of those assumptions and even gaining reaction from some of you on some of those assumptions so that we can debate it and, and to pull that that debate even in a more public place than, than here. There's a lot of people thinking about the role of the employer-sponsored insurance market. There is a very complex services market that serves it today that's completely interested in it and by services market anything in the medical delivery apparatus from physicians to hospitals to pharmaceutical organizations to therapeutic organizations to medical device organizations and so on and so forth consultants it's a complex war zone out there somebody wants to take you by the hand make sure that they can navigate you through it one and somebody wants to make sure that while you're out there you got the best weaponry to do the best with what you got so that's you know that that's that's a, an interesting thing i mean they're, they're going back to the whole just this is a topic du jour i mean the, there was a paper that we'll link that you can read in more detail than we'll get into here but you know the american health policy institute did a tipping points paper in 2019 that really it, it, its entire intent was to say, gosh, what what would it take for the employer-sponsored in insurance market to tip over into something else? Individual coverage, government, run everything. What is that? What is that moment? My personal opinion, I don't think the paper does a great job in really prognosticating those tipping points. It describes a series of things. It says these things could happen. I don't necessarily fault them for not getting or going any deeper than that besides laying out kind of the landscape. I think what the paper really does well, though, is it actually, it actually talks through the evolution of the market and how we've gotten to where we are here today. And I'm not talking about the 
World War II to today academic exercise that a lot of people like to take folks on. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about the the permutations from 80s to 90s HMOs to more broad PPOs to the Affordable Care Act and the impact on the new regulations that employers now had to respond to and deal with on a day in and day out basis to now where we are several years into the ACA. I I thought it was a good approach. I thought the discussion was good. I think the things that are worthy worthy of being highlighted are that we are in a a very complex supply chain that supports the employer market and the advantages within that supply chain constantly change. What that means is that one day this may be the perfect PBM partner and three years from now because competition and other things have happened, they're not. And when you move beyond just PBMs and you start to look at, you know, drug formularies and things that come in and don't and things that go out based on the constant volatility of pricing and the way pharmaceuticals are priced, the way physician contracts constantly change and the way that those folks are in or, in, in or out of network and how that changes often, it creates this very complex delivery system that has been largely adapted to the employer-sponsored model. A lot of you listening to this probably don't know me, but I know some of you know me pretty well and, and know me pretty personally, and you, you have some ideas on what my viewpoints are in this particular space. The thinking for many folks is that the employer market, because there's roughly you know 156 million people covered under this this particular approach or this particular mechanism it's the it's the market that that brings the best scale bullshit the employer market is not a scaled market it may have big numbers in aggregate but what it really is is it's it is a micro fragmented market of tons of employers of varying sizes that all have unique and risk pooling approaches it's highly fragmented which adds to the complexity it adds to the multi-tier pricing approaches that we see in healthcare which compound into other issues around affordability and and you know lack of the ability to to contain prices in certain areas in, in the healthcare models The employer model is very good for creating micro markets for which services providers can provide all sorts of different things to. It's complex because of networks, so let's create a company to help you navigate around all this complexity. It will take care of the consumers and make sure they don't end up on an island that serves food that's far more expensive than what was promised. It's a market that because of its fragmentation, allows for these companies to 
test things that get into the market faster than they might if it were a more truly aggregated risk pool. So from an innovation perspective, the employer-sponsored market is probably one of the better ways to go in, in helping to drive innovation and new market models and to test new digital therapeutics and to test some of the more experimental treatments that perhaps larger schemes wouldn't cover. That market exists to help with all of that. And I think that the market it presents itself in a way where it, it, it creates this flight of, or actually creates this influx of capital into new organizations that are being built to serve that dynamic, complex, fragmented market. But please, God, quit trying to sell people in this market that it is the be-all, end-all in containing affordability because it scales. It doesn't fucking scale. The market as it exists today, from an employer perspective, it allows for the services infrastructure to go out and it allows for that infrastructure to create winners and losers. It is set up to where employers don't want to fall behind competitors and there's all this benchmarking and others that, other things that go on to make sure that that's not happening. Because you got to keep up with the Joneses because you don't want to lose the next great mind that might actually grow the company 10x. So there's a recruiting dilemma associated with all of this fragmentation. And that creates this, this fear of being left behind. It creates this fear of not providing enough to the employees. It creates this fear of not having the right product or market model. It creates this fear of not providing the, the latest and greatest service or this latest or greatest digital therapeutic that your employees have to have this latest and greatest wellness program. It creates all of that because of recruiting, because of the, the assets, our people, our assets, and, and all the things that go on on the, on the HR front. And that's fine. But that is one thing that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with containing the overall trend with regard to affordability. If employers wanted to step up in mass and join together and work through those things as a coalition, of which the very largest employers are doing, that's one thing. But it's hard to say that you're going to scale that across 30,000 small groups in 50, 50 different cities. So th that's that's the, the issue the employer market itself is, is one, it doesn't really provide any scale. And second, it's growing ever more bifurcated. So going back to that, that large employer comment just a minute ago, in the large employer market as it exists today, that, that market is the, the, our largest you know, organizations that have huge valuations and are very well capitalized as, as organizations. They, they're not going to be worried about the cost of health care for their employees near to the level that a five-wife tire and body shop owner is going to. 
And because this complex services market is set up, and it begins largely by going after the largest employers and trying to, to generate buzz and demand and to get covered and to prove a value proposition with the very largest of employers, which aren't uh, the most price-sensitive buyers anyway, you get you get going there and you find success there with the solution. Then that solution at that price point gets pushed down the funnel and all of a sudden that solution at that price point or some give or take to it ends up pressing the balloon on the overall affordability issue for those employers that are nowhere close to being as well off as some of the biggest companies in our country. So my thought has always been that the the employer market is actually one of the largest culprits in driving the affordability challenge in our country because it is self-funded because insurers over the last 20 or 30 years have modified their business models to be really good administrators. They've been really good contract providers so they go out and contract and build networks that work all over the country. They become good point solution providers where they compete with other point solution providers on things like pharmacy and diabetes management and care management and all those things and they they built their business models to satisfy the needs of the large employers who are on the hook for the risk for that business for the most part and in that that world if employers at the top end of the scale the the bigger employers the really well capitalized employers aren't really that worried about cost. If those employers are still willing to pay the delivery systems and all the various technologists and other things that provide services to them at a rate of X, that may be a delta that's 20, 30, 40% more than what the small business owner can pay for the same service, too bad. Because the market often gets set at that level. You know, the contracts are set usually based on meeting the needs of the larger employers. And then that, those contracts, as they're set, they flow down into the, the risk models in other market pools or segments and ends up becoming kind of the set price, give or take some network permutations or changes for all employers. So large employers, in my opinion, have an impact on pricing overall in that marketplace, and it's somewhat what's driving some of the issues with regard to trend, and you know, and it's certainly bifurcating the strategies and, and bifurcating the coverages to the extent where they're very much as a have or have not market. If you've ever been a small business employer trying to recruit talent using the health insurers fully insured product portfolio as a way to recruit it and you're actually recruiting up against a multinational organization that that writes and defines its own plan pretty damn tough so you know you learn a lot on this side to not maybe compete as much on the on the benefit stuff you just have to check the box and pay for what you can and find talent that's willing to live with that and really buy into the mission and other things beyond that so so that bifurcation is there. You know, the whole scaling thing, going back to that a little bit, you know, the reason it doesn't scale is that there's just this hyper-fragmentation of the risk pool and, and the fact that there are thousands of employers, many of which that you know now self-fund their own arrangement, that may be as small as 100, 150 lives, 
that that's the scale right there. That one employer, 150 lives, you've just scaled to 150 lives. And then for the next employer, you've just scaled to 300 lives. And then for the the employer that's on the insurer's fully insured plan, that's 20 lives, they scale up in one block of business or whatever the insurer may have. And in some cases, it might be 100,000 employees. In some cases, that might be a million. Other cases, that might be 20,000. You might be in an association health plan that has 50,000 employees in it or has 10,000 employees in it. All those are examples of how the pools themselves are really fragmented. And this this hyper scale at 150 plus million people doesn't exist. So that that's my my only push on on the employer market is it just that's that's not there and you know just in talking through that a bit. The thing around the affordability issue though is that even even local communities are starting to think about how they can they can pull risk differently. And in one of the models, you know, the, the MIWAs that have been out there forever, you know, the, the recent acceleration of the ability to create association health plans has, has kind of resuscitated some of that thinking. You know, this is an industry that's a lot about what's old is new again. There were, there were Chamber of Commerce-based plans that existed in the past, and they had their day, and then they went away. Well, those type of things are back again. There is this focus on creating community-based health plans that are wrapped around some type of, of affinity for an association or for a, a local community. And those things are, are leading to conversations like we've had even here in places like Jackson, where we've had conversations about, you know, can we pull a bunch of employers of all sizes, big and small together to create an, you know, some type of an insurance risk sharing mechanism and take it from there and, you know, really solve for this issue not through the the real big fragmentation that the employer market exists and represents today, but to find a different way to 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 pull things together that stops short of being universal healthcare, but actually moves forward in saying, how do we solve for the very specific needs of our community? And that's that to me, I think that's one of the the true answers to a lot of this that that isn't single payer and the conversations are being had on that front right now, or universal healthcare and the conversations on that front. Instead of having a national centralized solution, and I alluded to this a little bit in the last podcast, I, I would rather have a solution that aligns all the community stakeholders in, in every town in America. And each one of those are their own solutions. Yes, still fragmented, but also starting to really align people around the needs of that specific community. Because the other thing about the employer model is that you may have 80% of your employees in one area, but then you have 20 scattered all over the country. How do you how do you plan for that? I mean, you rely on national networks or other things to solve for those other 20%. And when you sprinkle that all over the place, you know, that's another contracting and scaling problem that, that starts to present itself. What I'd love is I'd love to see us move beyond the employer-sponsored model and move more toward community-based models that that allow us to solve for the issues specific to a community. And if you're in a rural part of the state, you figure out how which community you get aligned with. 
you know, you, you think through all the various things, even going back to managed competition in the 90s, which, you know, was was the answer at the time and, and the thinking to what's what was being proposed is Hillary Care in, in the mid 90s, you know, when we had this argument. And as a sidebar, you know, the irony is not lost on me in the fact that we are here in Jackson Hole. We have, you know, paid homage to the folks that came before us in the Jackson Hole group that were that met here from the 70s to the 90s and helped output a series of ideas that really shaped a lot of policymaking that that happened in the in the years since and you know the big debate back then in the 90s was all about you know is the commercial market the answer or is there some big government solution that's a better answer and that debate played out and you know where we are since then is, is where you're sitting here today. And it, it, again, the irony is not lost to me that it feels like that period is here again. And here we are again in Jackson Hole. And here we are again in this valley where so many great leaders came in the past and they had great and wonderful ideas about how to fix this system with this confluence of public policy and commercial interest and what that would look like. I, I'm very, I'm very energized in the fact that th that time again feels like it's here. And it's time for us to all be thinking through that again and what that looks like. And that's a really exciting thing. Maybe scary too, but it's 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 an exciting thing. And there's a lot of opportunity for us to really shape what these next 10 years look like. And it's going to take a lot of really smart people that are involved in really big and small organizations that have big ideas to come together and to figure out what this all looks like. The discussion around the community here, though, is it's it's still it's 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 a difficult discussion because of the employer model and all the all the thinking that comes with that. You know, the I, I believe that solving the needs of the community is really important and it works better than central planning because the needs of Jackson Hole and, and our problems, particularly when you get down to the block level and you start to look at the social determinants of health, which is a big buzzword right now that extends, extends well beyond insurance and honestly should. You know, that, that's those things that are unique here, some bureaucrat a thousand miles away is going to have a hard time understanding what those very specific needs are. But the community here, the business owners, the hospital, the, um, the, the folks that, that are currently in individual coverage or maybe currently covered under Medicaid and others, the, the state, based on how they finance things, we all have a better idea of what needs to be done here than somebody centrally planning somewhere else would. And I, I love the idea of, of solving for our specific community. I love the idea of those of you that want to pick up the mantle and solve for your communities because I, I actually believe that that is that has the potential to be the great alternative to the employer-sponsored model. Now, will the employer-sponsored model and the service apparatus that supports it get out of the way? Hell no, not 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 easily, because there's a lot of uh, behavioral things that would have to change along the way. There's a lot of concern among employees that any change that's made to an employee benefit policy would be viewed as a takeaway and could in, impact, uh, from an employer perspective, recruiting and other things that they're that they're focused on today. And that's not an easy conversation to have. That sure as hell isn't an easy battle to win. And 
therefore, you know, we could be stuck in this cycle that we have this employer sponsored model until six, seven, eight years from now, if not even sooner, something implodes because there is a a change at the government level that says, all right, we're going to take a bigger piece of this now and, and find a way to, to control this in a way that's different than the way it's being done today. And that's a very, uh, it's becoming a more real possibility just given the rhetoric and given the populism around the topic right now. So love the community idea. Believe even through personal experience that that's, it's difficult given the, the promise and the contract between the employer and the employee around benefits. What I love even more about the, the community model is the things around things like social determinants of health and how that comes into play because that is the things around, you know, in, in our, in our markets here in, in Wyoming and in up in Montana and others, we have issues around things like depression. We have issues around things like suicide. We have a housing issue here because affordability is, is a really difficult thing to achieve for folks that, that don't have pretty sizable paychecks. And those are problems that, that, exist here and particularly the housing and the housing affordability thing is something that exists here that is a really difficult puzzle to solve uh, given the unique economic factors at play here very limited land that can be developed a lot of uh, very wealthy people that are attracted to living here uh, either full or part-time and still a service economy that needs to support all the folks that live here that that need to find a place to live that isn't six hours away from from their job and those are those are issues that, that move beyond insurance. And look, at the end of the day, the insurance stuff is a math problem. And the math as it plays out, and if it continues to rise each and every year, that math is really largely due to the way that we're consuming healthcare, and it's largely it's largely due to the price of healthcare. And th those are things that that the math and insurance premiums and others is really just an output of how those things are coming together. That's, that's, you could say that's probably the easy part, although the insurance folks will probably disagree with me, but that's probably the easy part. The harder part is, is solving for some of these social determinants of health issues and solving for them in a way that makes sense for your community and to actually aggregate all the resources that come to bear from the state level and from the county level and all the, the dollars that are thrown into the healthcare system today through the employer-sponsored model. If you could take all that money and use it in a different way and design a system that actually made more sense for your community because it's built specifically for your community, what would that look like? And how would that system be put together? Those are the questions that I'm really excited about trying to answer and trying to get after as, as, as time marches on, knowing that we're staring up a relatively steep mountain to, to get there. So, and, and, and I, I, I know that. So, <laughs> so I, I always try to end on a career, career note. And I know we're, we're running here in about the 35th minute right now in the podcast. So thanks for sticking with us at this point. But this, th there was a Forbes article in 2018, and there was a real discussion around growth mindset leadership. And the growth mindset has become this topic du jour. It's even uh, penetrated the, the school districts, at least here. My kids will be sitting around the table, and if I say something they don't like, well, they'll look at me in the eye, and they'll say, you know, my daughter will say, well, Dad, that's not a growth mindset orientation. Great. So, you know, what, what is that? You know, to define it in a couple of loose points, you know, one, if, if you're an organization that basically builds a box and says this is, this is the box that our organization sits in and plays in and this is who we are, 
and you define that for the for your employee population and it's already the who the organization is and what it's going to be and all those things that's already defined and it's kind of a top-down strategy based approach you know that's in some of this thinking that's actually considered kind of an anti-growth mindset model an anti-growth mindset culture because in that environment what you end up doing when you already define the sandbox you create a culture among your team that basically starts to play not to lose they they the growth mindset suffers in that environment because when you play not to lose there's a lot of complacency that sets in not necessarily playing to win playing not to lose playing not to get kicked out of the sandbox and that's the inverse of what some of these growth mindset thinkers are, are pushing forward right now and that's that you know in these growth mindset organizations it's individual leaders and employees that are uh, basically asked to define the business model and it's kind of a ground up business model definition and it's one that evolves based on market opportunity or problem and that the executives that that sit in in those roles are the ones that are trying to to amplify that type of a culture so that you you can actually see a world where for your business if it is flexible enough that there is you could say theoretically no bound to growth as long as you have the flexibility in the team and the culture and the mindset that allows you to look out into the market and and see the opportunities as they arise very very much aligned with an entrepreneurial mindset it's very much aligned with even how we have to operate here at m4 because we have to every year be in our services model something that is attractive to each of you so that you want to continue to be engaged with us and that's why we try a bunch of new things and in, in, in those type of things but you know it's in that world you have to drive diversity of thought you have to be able to have a culture that's willing to see and attack diverse opportunities and if, if you can do those type of things it creates an unlimited mindset in, on that end and the type of management folks and the executives that are required in those 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 environments there's a list of 10 things in the article we'll link it you can check it out but a couple of them. One's being open-minded. I think that's a no-brainer. I mean, the, the executive of the future has to be open-minded. It also has to be someone that's extremely comfortable with ambiguity. With the pace of everything and with machines getting more involved in, in a day-in and day-out basis with uh, how we make decisions and coordinate numbers and metrics and other things, and they may even self-determine some of the things that the business needs to do, you, you've got to be able to cope a little bit more with, with ambiguity, ambiguity and be a lot more creative uh, as, as time marches on. And then you know, my favorite in the whole list is just taking ownership. It's a very core philosophy to what we do here at M4. I mean, we don't hire hundreds of people here, but the people that we do bring in in the in the interview process, it's always around, are you the type of person that's willing to own what you do? Are you the type of person that's willing to push accountability aside? That's someone who says, give me a list of 10 things. And let's check off those 10 things and then tell me I did a good job and I'll go home happy. That's That's not the type of person we're looking for here. You know, we're actually looking for individuals that that want to own their craft that want to actually we set the broad brush and say this is what we need to accomplish this is what we are looking for from a set of skill sets from a set of skills in the role but now you come back to us and you actually tell us what we need to be doing differently as a business or what market opportunities we're missing because we haven't thought about it the way that you are and then let's debate it and then let's figure out with an open-minded platform you know is are these things that we should be pursuing you know is, is, is one of the new chapters of growth for us as a business so yeah I really love that and you know examples of this a lot of people talk about Amazon and others you know imagine the difference between the two types of organizations one being uh, it's Christmas time and there are a lot of of shipments that need to get out and they've got to be last mile delivered to homes and you recognize that your partners at UPS and others don't have the capacity to get all those things there. You could 
say, gosh, what we really need to be thinking through is how we stop delivery on these things and how we hamper growth until we figure out uh, how to modify the distribution relationships with our partners so that they can cr increase capacity. And that may take a while before our partners can catch up to the veracity of the consumers that are buying things on our, on our platform and want them delivered within these timeframes. And that's that's the box mentality. It says, ah, we're, we have to deal with the world that we live in today because our partnerships are defined as UPS and FedEx. And if they can't handle the demand, then whoops, it just kind of is what it is. Well, that's one way of looking at it. But the other way of looking at it is to say, we as an organization need to maybe get in the business of of having our own air fleet, air fleet, and that's where Prime Air comes in. And, you know, somebody says, well, why don't we increase capacity by bringing in our own planes? Not to scare our partners off and not to tell UPS and FedEx that at some point we're going to eliminate them because there's no way in heck that we're ever going to build a business as big as those guys in, in this this uh, domain because that's what they do and that's what they're good at. But, but, what if we build enough of a capability that we can manage the ebb and flow of capacity that we can actually even learn aspects of our partner's business to help them become even better at what they do and maybe learn aspects on our model and how we're infringing on things that we're throwing at them and help come back to them to say, here's ways that we think we can work with you as a better partner because we did this that will increase capacity for all of us and it will continue to meet the ongoing ongoing growth needs that our consumers are presenting in front of us. And that's that's a different approach and that's that's more of a growth mindset approach and uh, you know, so I'll kind of leave you with that. And then, you know, just last last thinking, if you haven't stopped by m4innovation.com, uh, we sure would enjoy if you did. And, you know, just come by. And if you're, you're not an existing member today and it's someone that we, we don't know yet, create a free profile. It'll also put you on our mailing list. It'll make access to these podcasts a little bit easier. You have a free preview period that we have ongoing, ongoing right now until February the 16th. It allows you to see some things that uh, some of our more premium members are able to see at this point. But uh, we'd love for you to stop by, create a profile. We'd love for you to learn a little bit more about who we are as a business. You know, we every year we establish uh, a, a community of executives that, that spans all different uh, titles and walks of life. But as we move up to the top end with our Formulate folks, those are typically top executives that are looking to forge deep connections and relationships with other executives across the industry, not just in one particular vertical, but across the industry so that you can start to look at problems maybe differently so that you can maybe apply this growth mindset and with one another, maybe find that partnership together that defines both of your companies for the next five years. And those, those are the exciting things that we've seen that have come out of those, those discussions. It's just the deeply forged connections, people that care about working with one another and care about each other's success and rooted in, in basically being cheerleaders for one another in helping each executive become successful. And it allows us to be in an environment where we can support one another, where we can get after critical issues and questions. We can seek opportunities together. So that's to the top end, but the website, it all starts there. Just create a profile, get to know us a little bit better, you know, read some of the the more advanced notes on these podcasts, you know, be, you know, be part of some of the the blog and content, which will continue to ramp as the year moves on. But uh, we'd love for you to come here, get a profile, be visible to other members, start to engage in different ways, and then uh, we can we can grow a relationship from there. But until that moment, and until we uh, meet again here in a couple weeks, we wish you the best. Have highly productive days. Make an impact. Let's do something that helps stem the affordability crisis in healthcare. Let's build better companies as we do it. And uh, have a good upcoming set of days. And we look forward to reconnecting with you in a few days. Thanks.